Welcome to Morning Soap. At Fusion Church, our desire is that every believer would not just attend church, but also hear from God daily through His Word. As we read the Bible, we begin to see how God responds to things. Doing daily devotions repatterns the way we think, transforms the spirit of our mind, and helps us become more like Jesus. Join us here, Monday through Friday, as various pastors and leaders at Fusion Church share devotion and teaching through that day's soap scripture. Download the current soap reading plan at fusionchurch.cc soap. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the things you're going to teach us today. Even when we read, um, sometimes it's a tough chapter uh, where there's things we may not understand. So, Father, we pray for revelation, and we pray that you would just give us insight this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask, um, Nicole's going to read this for me. So, Nicole, if you don't mind. Read. Yeah, no problem. I did not see that. I didn't have not even touched my phone yet this morning. That's okay. No problem. Uh, Judges 21, uh, and I'm reading out of the NIV version. Uh, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be was to be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. Verse 10. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Rimon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared, but there were not enough for all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamin, the Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is an annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. 
Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So that that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Okay, thanks, Nicole. Um, as you can tell, um, this chapter <laughs> is full of murder and mayhem. And we need to look back just a little bit for all of this to make sense. So, um, chapters 19 and 20 is where this whole mess starts. And in chapter 19, I don't know if anyone read this, but there's a Levite and his wife. And they were staying at a at a Benjamite city, and they were on their way home. Long story short, uh, this guy, there's suspicion that he's, he's a Levite, but he has a wife, and suspicion that his wife was unfaithful, and he had gone to meet with her to convince her to come back home. They passed through the city of uh, Gibeah, and this is where the mayhem starts, and so eventually they find a place to stay. Um, some men from that city knock on the door and say, give us that man that showed up because we want to have sex with him. Total chaos. He says no, um, but he is his concubine. And so these guys take this this woman, do unspeakable things. Um, she comes back. They find her the next day, and she's in front of the door, and basically she's died. And so that's chapter 19. Chapter 20 is Israel gathers to discuss this whole horrific affair. Um, the Levite tells the story. You know, they demand that the Benjamites give up these men. And so they refuse. Um, it leads to war. Um, Israel gathers this huge um, posse, including something very interesting here, 700 left-handed soldiers who could basically hit a fly on a wall. Um, so don't mess with left-handed people like me. But I'm just kidding. So Benjamin, so basically they asked God, you know, should we go to battle against Benjamin? You know, it's our own people. God says, yes, I'll give them to you. But in those following days, in those battles, the Israelites actually lose thousands and thousands of men. Um, so it ends up with this whole strategy happening where they kind of fake out this attack on the Benjamites. Eventually they overrun them and only 600 survive. So there's 600 men left of the Benjamites. And now we get into chapter 21, where there's a huge problem. Um, they don't want this tribe to basically die out. So now they need to find wives for these remaining Benjamites. As you can tell, a big mess <laughs> going on. Um, so here we are in 21, and it starts out with, now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. So we start with his oath. It's a radio issue. So 
as we talk about 21, think about truth and grace. Are the two go hand in hand? So there's the truth of what the Benjamites did, and there's the truth of what Israelites decided to do to them. But somewhere in the middle was probably the right thing that should have been done. Now, um, so this oath had a lot of unforeseen consequences, right? So they decided not to give um, their woman, but now there's justice. But in this case, justice not only brings punishment, but it has a huge consequence for these Benjamite people and Israelites because their whole tribe is at risk. So justice um, is very important, but justice should guard against punishment that is too harsh. But in this case, it seems like this punishment is possibly too harsh. Now, when we think about justice, we have to look at God, right? Because God is the ultimate righteous judge. And all of us are guilty of sin, and all of us are, are should be punished for our sin. But because of God's grace in giving us Jesus, um, we experience grace right through repentance. So just bear this in mind as you think about what's happening right here. Okay, so now we go on a little bit. Um, and there's a question. So why has this come to pass at Israel today? that there should be one tribe missing. Um, so this is verse three in Israel. I'm not going to go through all the verses. I'm just highlighting a few things. Now, the reason that in this position is because of the excessive vengeance of the tribes of Israel against the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there's about 600 of them left, and most of them are now unable to marry because of the curse that was the oath that was was set against them. And now there's the possibility of this tribe going extinct without finding wives. So this is the big issue that we are dealing with here. Now, okay. All right. I'm just looking through this one. I want to not skip anything here. Okay, so they decide that amongst the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, there's 400 young virgins that are left, but those 400 virgins are the result of a massacre, right? They killed the, the married woman, the children, all that remained was his 400 young virgins, but it still wasn't enough. So they needed another plan. So <laughs> I can't read this chapter without shaking my head vigorously at all the things going on here. So towards the end, um, they say, well, let's go down to this little festival that's happening. There's going to be woman dancing and whatever. And... This is verse 20. That so when the young woman of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush out from the vineyards, each, each of you sees one of them to be your wife. So it basically sounds like kidnap, right? But 
Um, scholars believe that it really wasn't kidnapping, that these women were actually willing, um, but that these marriages, they just didn't want to go through the whole official process. And that's why they say, um, you know, while, while they blah, blah, blah. And... 22, do us a favor for helping them. So when your fathers or brothers complain, we will say to them, do us a favor because we did not get wives for them during the war. So they're trying to make um, excuses and trying to go, it's still wrong, but there is a, um, scholars believe that these women are actually willing, but this whole process was designed to kind of circumvent the official um, ways that you would actually find a wife. But either way, still wrong. So there's this whole charade that goes on. Now, they could have simply confessed their sin of making a foolish oath, right? But instead, and done the right thing, instead of trying to make two wrongs equal a right. So <laughs> two wrongs never equal a right. So, okay. Chapter 21 ends with verse 25, which says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, and hence the big problem, right? So there was no king. So there was a moral, political, social, spiritual chaos going on, right? Um, and people had forgot about God as the ultimate king. So everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And then generally the 400-year period of the Book of Judges was marked by this kind of radical individualism, right? They rejected the standards of God's word and accepted the individual standard of what was right in their own eyes. So what can we learn from this mess in 1920 and 21? So the first thing is, right, there are consequences for sin, right? So this entire ordeal, including the initial crime and the subsequent war, serves as a reminder of the devastating consequences of sin and disobedience of God's laws. The actions of the people, including the Benjamites, were characterized by lawlessness and moral decay. So if there was a proper biblical worldview and a proper recognition of God as central authority, we probably wouldn't have been in this place, but yet here we are. Um, number two, which leads us into number two, so the lack of central authority. Um, this whole book is known for the cycle of recurring sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. It happens again and again and again. One, it speaks of our humanity, right? That we are just human and, and um, sin is a problem. And it also highlights the lack of a central authority and or strong leadership during this time, right? Leading to chaos. Everyone did as they saw fit. Um, if we have time, I want to talk a little bit about this Christian worldview and what it should look like. We should have time. Okay, number three. This was a time of desperation and, ingenu and ingenuity. So, so 21 shows the desperation of the Israelites to find wives for the remaining men of the tribe of Benjamin because they had vowed not to give their own daughters in marriage to them. Their solution, which really wasn't a good solution, 
was to allow the Benjamites to capture wives from the woman of Jabesh Gilead, who had not participated in the war. Uh, not a good plan at all, but it speaks of their ingenuity to try and fix a problem which they had created in the first place. So a lot of desperation, a lot of ingenuity um, because of poor decisions. And again, this is idea of two wrongs don't make a right. If we had avoided these issues to start with, we wouldn't be in this place. Number four, um, we learned that keeping vows was a very serious thing, right? So this chapter emphasizes the seriousness of vows and commitments made before the Lord. The Israelites felt bound um, by the oath not to give their daughters. Okay, so this led them to this very unique solution to circumvent their vows. At the end of the day, they're trying to circumvent their vow instead of just reversing an oath, but they chose not to. So you can see this, this idea of how seriously they take vows and commitments. So the fifth thing we can learn from this is the preservation of the tribes was very important to them, right? I mean, historically, it's an important thing. And the book concludes with the assurance that the tribe of Benjamin will not be completely wiped out. Um, the methods they chose were dumb, but the Israelites did not want to eliminate one of their own tribes, so they found a way to allow the tribe to continue. All of this could have been avoided um, if the Benjamites had done the right thing in chapter 19, I think it was 19 or 20, where they were asked to give up the offenders that had killed the Levite, but they would not, which probably speaks to a huge moral decay in that tribe, you know, where you have men asking for another man to be brought out, you know, to do bad things with. So it speaks of this level of moral decay that had happened at this time as well. So absence of moral absolutes, right? We just mentioned that. So it highlights the lack of moral standards during this time in Israel's history. Um, the actions of the people, such as the abduction of wives, the killing of non-virgin women, um, reflect the lack of adherence to clear moral absolutes, right? Everyone does as they saw fit. Huge problem. So lack of a biblical worldview, lack of, of being able to see through God's moral lens, right? So 21 um, serves as a reminder for the need of one strong leadership, two, the importance of moral values, right? And then three, the consequences of sin and lawlessness. And it also demonstrates the complexities of dealing with difficult situations that you caused yourself and then making decisions within a moral framework. Okay, so let's look a little bit at this idea uh, let me pause there for a second. Do you guys see the absolute mayhem and chaos that's been going on in these three chapters? And this is the last book of Judges, and it ends in this way. So, you know, Joshua, Joshua is gone. And if you remember in Judges 2, it said that if people had um, – let me just go back there real quick so I don't mess this up. It said um, – 
Judges 2, verse 6. Yeah, 6 through, well, let me just go to 10. Judges 2, verse 10 says, After that generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So within a generation or two, Israel had lost their focus on God and they had stopped. They had lost their memory of what God had done for them. And so now here we are in 21 in absolute chaos. So it's just a reminder of, you know, how important it is to keep Christ at the forefront of everything because we're all at risk of falling into this moral depravity, you know, without Jesus who saves us, right? So let's talk a little bit about um, what does it mean to have a biblical view, worldview? What does it mean to have a Christian, another way to say that is to have a Christian worldview. So, so having a biblical or a Christian worldview simply means interpreting and understanding the world through the lens of the Bible, right, through God's word. So it involves believing that the Bible is the inspired word of God and using its teachings and principles to form the foundations of what we believe, so our values and our actions. So clearly these guys in Judges had forgotten what God's values, true values and beliefs were, and the actions speak to that. So what's the first thing that... um, what does it mean to have a biblical worldview? So one, it means you've got to have a God-centered perspective, right? So a biblical worldview recognizes the existence of a personal, loving, and sovereign God who created us, the universe, and everything in it. And God is seen as the ultimate authority and the source of all truth. And I think that's the problem that we see here, that they choose their own truth, you know, God is not the ultimate provider of truth, and they are um, in some ways, well, in in many ways, they are just choosing um, to place their own truth in place of absolute truth, okay? So God is the ultimate authority and source of all truth. Number two, the authority of Scripture. So under this worldview, We consider the Bible as the ultimate authority in matters of faith, ethics, and morality. Um, We see it as divinely inspired and without error, and it provides guidance for all aspects of our life. You know, in Judges 21, it ends with that infamous phase. um, They all did what was fit in their own eyes. And when we have the authority of Scripture behind us, we don't do as we see fit. We do as Scripture guides us, right? So it's totally different. Um, Judges 21. Okay. All right. The third one is um, we have to look at our purpose as humans and in creation. So, A biblical worldview affirms that God created the world and humanity with a purpose. Um, We are unique creation made in God's image, designed for a relationship with him and to reflect his character. So as I look at Judges 21, I don't see the actions reflecting, you know, God's character. Um, 
you know, we are designed in God's image. And I always say that I'm from the youngest age to the oldest age, we are designed with that God DNA in us, if you want to call it that. And there's no baby Holy Spirit, right? There's only one Holy Spirit. And so all of us are made to kids, adults, whatever age, we're all created um, to be able to respond to God's design and to the Holy Spirit in us. Okay. And then number four, a biblical worldview acknowledges the reality of sin, tracing its origins to the disobedience of Adam and Eve, right? And the Garden of Eden, right in the beginning. And so we believe in the fallen nature of humanity, which helps to explain the brokenness and moral struggles in the world. It doesn't make it right, but it helps us understand why these weird things happen, why, um, you know, the Israelites chose to destroy most of the tribe. You know, it explains that basically we are all um, under the curse of sin. We're all fallen in nature, therefore we need a savior, right? So that leads me to the next one. So redemption and salvation, right? So central to a biblical worldview is the concept of redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ, right? It's only through Jesus. So it reminds us that God saved his son to die for our sins, um, to offer forgiveness, but also reconciliation to those who believe in him. So hence that relational aspect of being in relationship with God through what Jesus has done for us. Okay. So number, this could be six, I think. Um, purpose and meaning. Um, having a biblical worldview gives life purpose and meaning as we are encouraged to seek God's will to align our lives with his purposes, right? And we do that through studying God's word. We do that through being in community. We do that through um, prayer, through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we all have a purpose, and God wants us to align, us to align with his purpose for, for our lives. Okay, um, my numbers are off here, but the next one is engagement with the world. So a biblical worldview calls for engagement with the world while maintaining distinctiveness from the values and practice that contradict biblical principles. Okay, so... We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And we need to make, maintain our distinctive biblical values and not take on the things that contradict uh, biblical principles. So if you look at um, Judges 21, <laughs> you can see a lot of times where they're like, well, we're going to do this, but that doesn't necessarily line up with God's word. Okay, uh, a biblical worldview, um, there has to be personal transformation, right? So it emphasizes the importance of personal transformation, and a biblical worldview encourages us as believers to grow spiritually and become more Christ-like in our attitudes and our actions. So we are personally transformed through what Jesus does in us, right? And so therefore we're able to 
uh, balance out grace and truth in a better way than possibly these Israelites did at this time, right? So understanding grace and then responding in truth. And then finally, we believe in heaven, right? We believe that there will come a time after this earthly life has ended, we will join with um, Jesus in heaven and live for eternity with him. So the reason I brought this up, this whole concept of a biblical worldview, I think this is a major issue that these Israelites were experiencing at the time. You know, they had lost sight of who God was as the absolute authority to them and what it meant to live as the people of God and hence wars and depravity and all kinds of things going on. And I think today we live in a similar time and place where there are so many people who don't have a biblical worldview, including those who maybe call themselves Christians, right? And so it's good every now and again to go, what does it really mean to have a biblical worldview? What does it mean to live as a person of faith, um, to be in the world, but not of the world? Okay. So hopefully this has been helpful. Uh, when I first read chapter 21, I was like, how on earth am I going to teach about, teach through this verse as it's really all about destroying a tribe and then kidnapping some people and then because we murdered some people in the chapter before. But at the end of the day, um, I think God is reminding us here of the need of absolute authority, right? That he is the absolute authority in everything, that we need to have a strong biblical worldview, and we need to not just make decisions and plans based on what we think, but we really need to seek godly counsel and seek God in everything. Um. This was a tough chapter, but it's, it's a reminder that, you know, consequences of sin are real. The lack of central authority leads to chaos and mayhem, right? Um, keeping vows um, has some big issues if they're not aligned with what God wants, right? So they'll be really careful with things like that. So I hope you guys have taken something away from this. Um, I'm going to pray and then close this up. So thank you, everybody. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the absolute moral authority in our lives. We thank you that um, you've given us Jesus and you've given us a way to um, um, way to measure uh, what absolute truth looks like and that your word guides us and lead us. And so, Father, we pray that you would just um, allow us to be in the world but not of the world. Father, I pray that you would remind us constantly of who you are and the things you have done in our lives that we would not forget, um, like the Israelites did um, pretty quickly within a generation or two. Father, we pray that we would um, not only invest in ourselves, but in those around us, Father, that we would be preservers of the faith, that we would be salt and light um, to the world. So, Father, bless us all. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're teaching us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.